to Job chapter 19. I'm going to read verses 23 to 27. Job chapter 19. Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book, that they were graven with an iron pen and led in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. But ye should say, Why persecute we him, seeing the root of the matter is found in me? But ye, but ye afraid of the sword? Be ye afraid of the sword? For wrath bringeth the punishment of the sword, that ye may know there is a judgment. Maybe seated. I'm trying to make history here uh, by being the first one ever in this church to use an emoji for a title of a sermon. <laughs> well, the book of Job is a mystery. Who wrote the book of Job? Uh, in which time period did Job live? Does Satan really meet with God from time to time? Does God really make wagers with Satan in regard to the righteous? Why is there so much made of nature and the natural world in the dialogue between Job and his friends and then between God and Job. Why did Job need to suffer so unfairly? Why do unfortunate events take place in such rapid-fire succession in Job's life? Why does God bless Job with exactly double in cattle? Why does it seem that this story is too weird to believe? Was Job a real person or, or a fictional character? Did the events of the book of Job really take place? Or is the book of Job a fictional story to illustrate a deeper truth? And why do I have all these questions? If you have some questions about the book of Job, it's okay. The book of Job is full of questions. There's over 300 questions in the book of Job, and that's more than double what you find in the book of Psalms, which is a much larger book. More questions in the book of Job than any other book. The book of Job is humorous, poetic, and sarcastic. And did I mention that it's full of questions? It also contains some very important theological truths about God that we struggle with. Joseph Carroll was a man from London, and he preached 424 sermons on the book of Job. That's 23 years of Sundays. Afterward, he is quoted as saying that he still does not have a clear understanding of some of the texts. Now, if I forced you to listen to 400 sermons from the book of Job, some of you would do what Job did and curse the day you were born. And probably more of you would curse the day I was born. So we're going to explore uh, the book of Job. We're not even going to get started, but we're going to look at a few things. And since we are going to cruise through this in one sermon, uh, you should feel about 23 years younger when we're done. So my prayer is that you would gain an appreciation or at least a curiosity that will pull you toward the book to study the tremendous truth about God, but ultimately you would ask the same questions that Job did. 
and be led to the same responses toward God that his broken, beaten, belittled, righteous man had. So previously I've read through the book of Job, basically because it falls into a schedule of Bible reading. But recently I've been drawn to it. I've come to appreciate it. I've learned from it. I've found the grace of God in the book of Job. And I've always, I'm sorry, I've found ways to overcome temptation in the book of Job. Um, And maybe to make it personal, I've found some truths in the book of Job that when applied to my life, I can be less cynical, less sarcastic, more vulnerable, more trusting of God, and more drawn to him and to his presence. If you're like me, you live with some fears. And some of those fears are directed to God. But when we have... Uh, when we have an improper view of God, we fear Him. We build hedges and boundaries in our relationship with Him. So since the book of Job is a book of questions, let's begin with some questions of our own. Is Job a real person? Did he actually experience the events listed in the book? Did God really have a conversation with Satan and use Job as an example of faithfulness for Satan to observe? In Genesis 46.12, we read of a man named Job. He was the son of Issachar. So this Job is a grandson of Jacob. And some would speculate that this is the Job that we read about in the book of Job. However, some people say that Job was not even his real name, since the word Job means persecuted, and it just, it just fits too well. Job likely lived around the time of the patriarchs. I doubt that the Job that we read about was Jacob's grandson. It's very likely that Job was a Gentile. Job is one of the only Old Testament books, or maybe the only one, that does not reference the law. And this leads people to believe that Job was Gentile. Or perhaps the events take place before the law was given. Another reason that I don't think that Job was a descendant of Abraham is because there is no mention of genealogy in the book. This would be very unusual and out of place for the descendants of of Abraham. So who Job is, is a bit of a mystery. Um, There's also uh, names and places that match some archaeological findings that help date the book of Job to the time of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Who wrote the book? Some historians believe that Moses wrote the book. They say that Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, would have lived in the same area as the story takes place. And Jethro then relayed the story to Moses, along with the revelation of what took place in the heavens above. Other people say that Elihu, uh, the mysterious fourth friend, wrote the book of Job. But exactly who wrote the book? does remain a mystery. So with all these mysteries unsolved, is it even safe to say that Job was a real person and that the the events are facts? Ezekiel 14.14 mentions Job along with Daniel and Noah. And I don't know a person here that would question the existence of Daniel or Noah. James 5.11 also mentions Job and his patient perseverance. And I believe that The fact that Job is mentioned twice in Scripture would indicate that Job was indeed a real person. Job lived and suffered and questioned 
and persevered. In the book of Job, Job, I'm sorry, in the book of Job, God is literally God, and Satan is literally Satan. And Job is literally a man who lived, suffered greatly, and remained faithful to God. Now here's where the book gets tricky. The entire conversation between Job and his friends is some of the most beautiful poetry ever written. We don't see this in the English King James Version, but the book of Job is actually written by a very skilled poet, and it's full of humor. And what's even more beautiful to me is that it's holy sarcasm. God's words to Job are very sarcastic, and I love this. Now, of course, Job and his friends and, and God speaking to Job did not speak in this poetic form. In addition to this, the dialogue of his three friends um, really described three strands of theology that were pre- prevalent uh, during the time that um, Job lived and, t- and are still prevalent today. So it would seem to me like the events of Job's life occurred as stated and were recorded. And probably at a much later time, uh, someone put the dialogue to poetry and created a masterful work of, a sto- of the story. Maybe it's a little like a production, a drama. It's a true, st- true story relaying actual events and characters, but the dialogue is transferred into poetic structure with humor interjected from time to time. And then there is a divine revelation of what took place in heaven that was revealed to someone. So there's a little bit of a mystery about the book of Job that remains a mystery to us. In chapter 1, verse 13, it says, One day Job's children were gathered at the oldest brother's house. The oxen were working in the fields. The donkeys were pleasantly grazing beside them, and the 7,000 sheep were also grazing and being cared for by the host of servants that Job had. The camels were also doing something, whatever camels do, uh, probably filling their water tanks. But it says that there was a day, there was a day in the life of Job where a servant came to Job in chapter 14, verse 1, it says, the Sabaeans took all the oxen and all the donkeys and killed all the servants except for me. I only am escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another servant came running in. The fire of God struck the 7,000 sheep. All of them are dead, and so are the servants who were watching them. They were all consumed except for me. I alone escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another servant came and said, Three bands of Chaldeans came and swarmed in on the camels and took them. And they slew all the servants with the sword, except for me. I alone am escaped to tell you. And in a matter of minutes, Job lost all his stuff. All his income, all his possessions, all his earthly value and his wealth. And Job was a very successful businessman. So I believe that the gears of his brain were already moving. And as this fourth servant came running up to Job... I can only imagine the panic that he felt wondering about his family. And of course, the fourth servant says that the children were gathered and the house came down and there was total loss. All the children 
and all the servants, except for me, are dead. And Job arose, he tore his mantle, he shaved his head, he fell down, and he worshipped and said, I entered life with nothing, and I will leave life with nothing. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I've not suffered as some of you had in this life. I've had an easy life, and I cannot even imagine or begin to imagine. I have no frame of reference for the amount of suffering and pain that Job is going through. What Job has no idea about is what's taking place between God and Satan. He didn't know that Satan presented himself to the Lord, and that God asked Satan if he had observed Job and his outstanding faith. Did he notice that Job was perfect and upright, that he feared God and he turns away from evil? Have you seen that, Satan? Satan said that Job is only serving you, God, for the material blessings that you provide. If you take all of those away, he will curse you to your face. And Job was completely unaware of this test that he was under and what was at stake in the supernatural realm. The next time Satan appeared before God, Satan, I'm sorry, God again reminds him that even though Satan was destroying him by taking away everything that he had, including his family, Job is retaining his integrity. He's still choosing God. And God says, um, see that Job retains his integrity? What have you been conjuring up against him now? What are you working on to destroy, to destroy Job further? So God gives Satan permission to attack his health. So Job loses all his earthly, earthly possessions. He's inflicted with deplorable health conditions. In chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, it describes painful itching boils from head to toe. Chapter 7 describes festering scabs, crawling with maggots. Chapter 7, verse 14, describes mental anguish, terrifying dreams, and visions of the night. Chapter 30 described unending gnawing pain in his bones, his blackened skin peeling from his body along with burning fever. So there is spiritual reality to the story of Job, the thing that is happening above him. And there is the physical aspect of his suffering, and there's a mental anguish that he is in as well. And while he is suffering, immense pain is blended with intense worship. Shall we receive good at the hand of the Lord and shall not receive evil? And he says about God, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Job, who was once the greatest man of the East, one of the wealthiest men and the most influential member of society, is now sitting in ashes, scraping oozing, festering scabs from his body for one moment of relief only to realize that they were filled with crawling worms. The people who once reverenced him turn away. They have no idea how to deal with what their eyes are seeing, and they have no understanding or explanation for his suffering. And so they try to rid him from their memory. Job's life is in complete ruin. It's completely hopeless. He's lost family, fortune, fame, and his friends. Now, he has a couple of friends, but they are miserable comforters. With friends like these, who needs enemies? So he sits separated from society and in complete physical 
mental, emotional, and spiritual turmoil. The most offensive part about the book of Job, the thing that really upsets me, is the fact that Job was righteous, perfect, blameless, one that feared God and turned away from evil. If this had happened, if these events would have happened to Samson, I'd be okay with that. Or if some other person who was, in our opinion, less spiritual or less mature, we could understand it. It would be sad, but it would make sense to us. But nobody deserves suffering less than Job, and yet nobody suffered more than Job. And it's in this state that his three friends come to him. They cared at least enough to arrange a meeting with Job, and so they traveled a long distance, they made their way, and they sat with him. When they saw him, they could not believe their eyes. These men were so stunned that they were completely speechless for seven days. Seven days of complete silence. These men sat. And this is such a thing of beauty for these friends to share in his agony, the complete agony of Job. They should have left on day seven, and their mission to encourage him would have been much more successful than what it actually was. They should have left without saying a word. To be fair, it was Job that broke the silence and not the three friends. Job, after seven days of complete silence, finally says he curses the day he was born, among other things. But Job is venting, and he is frustrated. And the things that he says from the anguish of his soul triggers some of his friends. Uh, But Job basically says, my worst nightmare has become a reality. My worst fear came true. But some of the things he says startle his friends into speaking. And so they start up with their speeches. Eliphaz, who seems to be the oldest, spoke first. And then Job uh, responded to Eliphaz. And then Bildad uh, was next. And Job replies to Bildad. And at this point in the story, Zophar has been silent. And it's a good thing. I mean, Zophar is so good. But he speaks and things fall apart. So there's these three rounds of dialogues with Job and his friends. And then there's a fourth man, Elihu, who speaks. And he was mad at Job because he wasn't speaking correctly and he was mad at his friends because they weren't right either. Um, he starts off with this weak pretense of humility and he says, I'm, I waited till last, I'm way younger, you guys are older, wiser. Um, but he says, yeah, I, I have the spirit too, so I'm, I'm going to be smart like you guys and I'm going to talk. Um, but he ends up not being humble at all and he basically just blends the previous conversations into one and... Um, Job describes it as a bunch of hot air. And he does that for five chapters. And finally, after he's done, the Lord speaks to Job. And the Lord says that Job's friends have not spoken rightfully about God. And this is important because it's, we're, we're going to see their theology and where they were wrong. What we believe about God is important. Job said, or I'm sorry, God says Job's friends were wrong. But God also has some questions for Job. And God says, will you condemn the Almighty? Are you, deter- are you determined to prove God wrong just so you can be right? And then God gives Job a lecture on nature. He tells him of stars and galaxies and seas and clouds 
And God asked Job how the constellations were hung. Surely, Job, you know all this. Do you know this because you were there when they were formed? Or is it because you're so old? So God is asking Job all these sarcastic questions. Question after questions, he asked Job about nature. And it's beautiful poetry. And it's mixed with holy sarcasm. And it's, it's pretty good stuff. But the message seems to be this. Job, if you don't know about the natural world, how can you instruct me, God, about the spiritual world? After all, I am the creator and the sustainer of life. God says to Job, will the one who contends with me give me instructions to follow? And Job, after demanding an audience with God and begging 36 times to speak with him, immediately regrets it. And he says, I've, I've said one or two things, but I'm done. I will say no more. I'm a vile man, and I will lay my hand over my mouth. But God is only halfway done speaking to Job. And he says, gird up your loins like a man. Come on, Job, get your big boy pants on. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Talk to me, Job. Do you know any of this stuff? Who gave the sea its border? Who commanded the morning? Do you know anything about the gates of death? Have you seen the doorway of the shadow of death? Think about it, Job. I've created behemoth. I created you. What about Leviathan? The amazingly wild, completely untamed armored vehicle of a beast. He sneezes fire, and smoke comes from his nostrils like a seething pot. Can you capture this fire-breathing dragon? Can you put a collar on him? Can you put a leash on him for your girls to play with? And this is where I get a little upset with God, because Job doesn't have any girls. They're gone. And God knows this. But finally, God stops gushing. He stops this gushing torrent of questions, and, and Job responds. And he responds correctly. And in the beginning of chapter 42, he says, I know that you are sovereign. You are all-powerful. You are all-knowing. I have talked about things that I have no understanding they are over my head. I had heard of you, God, with my ears, but now I can see you with my eye. And because I can see you, I now abhor myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. At the end of the story, God requires Job to intercede for his friends. And after that, God doubles Job's earthly possessions and gives him seven sons, and three daughters. And Job lived a full life and saw four generations. That's the story of Job. Now I'd like to back up and just um, quickly go through some of the theology in the book of Job. First of all, uh, let's think a little bit about Satan. Satan is referred to as the Satan or the accuser. And that is precisely what he is, precisely what he is. He's fallen, and his desire is that all humanity be fallen. But Satan, we see, is limited uh, in, in power. Uh, he is uh, limited to what God allows. He needs permission from God to work evil. In Matthew 8, you remember the story, um, the, the demons needed permission from Jesus to be cast into the, the swine. They worked under permission from Jesus. 
So we don't fight physical battles. We fight supernatural powers, Ephesians 6.12. And um, I don't think supernatural powers are to be feared. They are to be fought. And we do that through intercessory prayer to God, who is holding the power to stop them or allow them to continue. Um, Jesus was clear in his conversation with Peter in Luke 22. He said, Peter, Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat. Peter, Satan is after you. He intends to destroy you, but Peter, I have prayed for you that you would remain faithful. And this is one of the most reassuring truths about Satan. He is accountable to God. He is limited to what God allows. God holds the leash. And we wish that that leash would be shorter. And there is coming a day when it will be. Greek uh, mythology places a division between the supernatural and the natural. So this is kind of logical to us and it makes sense. So according to the Greeks, there is the natural world on one side, and um, that would be nature and humanity. Uh, and on the other side is the supernatural, God, angels, Satan, demons. Now this is somehow easy for us to understand as humans. We, we clearly know we're different from the supernatural. But if we're not careful, we fall in line with ancient Greek mythology in placing God and Satan so near each other. It tends to create an imbalanced fear of Satan and the supernatural. Now, scripture teaches, biblical truth, is that the line of division is, is not according to Greek mythology, but it states that the division is between the Creator and all that is created. And so all of what is created answers to the Creator, God. And this then puts a clear line of distinction between God and Satan and puts Satan closer to the level of humanity rather than on the same level of God. Satan works under God's permission. So this may not mean very much to you, but as I thought about this and how vastly different and how much more God's power is compared to Satan, I was, um, I was blessed. Satan is very small compared to God, and he is our accuser, but God is our Savior, our judge, and he intercedes for us just like he did with Peter. Jesus intercedes for us. He goes to battle for us. So let's look at some of the message of these friends uh, to Job. Eliphaz's message to Job was um, one of conventional morality. Um, good people receive blessing. Bad people receive judgment. Uh, Eliphaz is older, and he begins gently, and he starts to work on Job. And he says, you know, we're all, we're all sinners. Just admit it. Um, you know, when you repent, then God can restore the blessing and we can all move on with our lives. Uh, but Job is adamant that he has not sinned. He is innocent. Uh, and he says, why am I being uh, judged more severely than others? Why am I suffering more than others? Um, so he does not accept this, this cl cliche answer of conventional morality. And so when Job rejects this message, uh, Eliphaz becomes less kind and more scornful. And he says that, uh, all of mankind is depraved, and um, 
We can't prosper, and if they do prosper, mankind is just unhappy, and he says that God is too busy, too busy to care about you, Job, so don't bother him. He can't help you. Um, Eliphaz basically says that God is too big to care. He takes a truth about God, that he's big, that he's vast, that he's transcendent, and he turns it into a negative. Bildad comes along, and he... uh, he kind of applies his own experience and, and makes doctrine out of it. So he says there's not anything new that's, that can be true. Uh, he lives by a formula, and he's, he doesn't have any compassion. He ends up telling Job that well, maybe you haven't sinned, but your children are all dead, so obviously they are deplorable sinners, and there's really no compassion in, in Bildad whatsoever. Um, and he, he says, why do we even have to listen to you, Job? You're just full of sin. Um, so Bildad says that God is he's all-powerful. He has the ability to um, give you um, relief from your suffering, but um, yeah, he's, he's so powerful that it's of no use to bother him. Um, why would you plead your case to someone who has so much power as God? Obviously, he's against you. Zophar tells... Um, Job, that God is, uh, he, he's aware of a sin that Job isn't, and that's why he's suffering. Uh, he knows all things, and he even knows some things about you that you don't know, and he knows that there's sin there that you can't even see, and that's why he's judging you, that's why you're suffering. And Zophar says you can't even win when there's a God who knows everything. So we, we, um, we can sort of make sense of what the friends are saying. Um, you know, Eliphaz, you know, we can't understand a God that's so big. Why, why would he even pay attention to somebody like me that's so small? Why would he even care about us? And we sort of understand that God's so far above us that he doesn't care about us. It, it almost makes sense to us. And then there, uh, like Bildad, are those who believe that God is powerful. He, he does have the power to remove evil, to stop suffering, but he doesn't really um, listen. Um, because he's so powerful, he takes advantage of that and just belittles us. Or maybe God knows everything, um, like Zophar says, um, but he doesn't have the power to, to change it. If we're not careful, we start to, to fall into some of these wrong uh, theologies. But we can all agree that there's evil in the world, that there's suffering in the world. There is um, natural disasters, there's uh, damaging storms of the natural uh, world, there's earthquakes, hurricanes, viruses, there's calamity. And then there's evil deeds carried out by evil men. But why is there evil in the world? Why is there suffering and loss? And who is responsible for it? Is it because God is too big to care? Is it because he doesn't know what's happening in the future and so he can't stop it? Why does a pastor in Burma live in hiding in the jungle only to get brutally murdered? And a pastor in Burden Hand basically have no idea what trials are and live a fat life of ease without suffering. Why have some of you suffered tremendous loss? And I have suffered little or not at all. Well, God is sovereign. 
And this is something that's very difficult for us to understand, especially in America. We have rights and privileges that protect us from uh, a dictator. Our government has checks and balances, so we are protected. Um, we are not accustomed to a government or a leader that is so strong that the people have no voice. Having a ruler to be able to carry out whatever he wants, whenever he wants, it's unheard of for us. But God is sovereign. He answers to no one. Everything that you know about was created by him, and there is not anything that was made that has not been created by him, John 1. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist." Maybe you believe that God is all-powerful, but you question whether or not God really knows the future. Does he know the decisions that an evil person will make? And if he does, why doesn't he stop them before they even happen? Sometimes we fall into thinking that God is powerful, but he doesn't know. Well, God does know. In Psalm 22, he says this. He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They pierce my hands and my feet. They cast lots to divide my garments. Now clearly, he's speaking of Jesus on the cross. And this is taking place a long time before the cross. God clearly knows the evil hearts of men, past, present, and future. And he does not stop it. Well then, apparently, uh, he's unloving. Or he can't stop it. So we begin to create these cute little boxes to put God in. Either he's powerful but unloving, or compassionate but not powerful, or powerful but just too powerful to care. Just because you cannot understand God does not make it impossible. Just because we cannot understand how God works does not make it untrue. Will you bring God down to something that can be understood? Will you contend with the Almighty as Job did? Will you, do you want to prove him wrong just that, so you can be right? Just so you can make sense of who God is? Will you make him a false God because you cannot trust the God that is there? Human pride and arrogance demand a reason. Give me a reason for my suffering and then I'll trust. I have the right to know the reasons. Don't forget that Job never saw into heaven and God never gave him a reason for his suffering. He never answers Job question, Job's question and he never tells Job about the conversation with Satan. He does take the question away though. When Job saw God, he had no more questions even though he received no answer for his question. If we are honest, we are just a little bit offended by God, who is completely sovereign and powerful over everything, who knows everything past, present, and future, but does not stop evil and suffering, especially when the righteous suffer. Now, Job's honesty throughout the book is very refreshing. Job cries out for a conversation with God. He wants to talk to God, but there is silence. He begs for answers, but he gets nothing. And in frustration and agony and silence from heaven, he demands that God provide answers 
He wants to take God to court, to cross-examine him, to force him to speak. 36 times he demands that God answer him. And he is vulnerable enough to share his alternating moods of, of hope and despair during suffering. Sometimes he knows that eventually he will see God and be vindicated. And at other times he says, if a man die, shall he live again? As we look at Job, the events in both heaven and earth surrounding Job, who is responsible for Job's suffering? Were his friends right? Was it Job's fault? Was it Satan's fault? Or was it God? Job was righteous and clearly not able to control the events of his life. And we can't blame Job for suffering. Satan needed permission from God to do evil, to do evil to Job. God, it seems, was the one providing the long leash for Satan. And in the end, he was the only one who could end it for Job. He was the only one who had the power to stop it. And he allowed it. And not only did he allow it, he invited Satan to test Job as if to incite evil against Job. God is in complete control. First Chronicles 29.11 Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come of thee. And thou reignest over all, and thine hand is power and might, and in thine hand is to make great and to give strength unto all. Psalm 103.19, The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom ruleth over all. Isaiah 46.9, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring to the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. 1 Samuel 2, 6-8, The Lord killeth, the Lord maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave, he bringeth up. The Lord maketh poor, and maketh rich. He bringeth low, and lifteth up. Psalm 115, 3, But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he pleased. Daniel four thirty five. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will, in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? If God is in complete control, should the responsibility to remove evil rest on God? We try to protect God from bad press. We're not comfortable with prescribing the problem of evil to God. And I'm afraid in doing this that we create a weaker, false God. But at least it's one that we can understand. Deuteronomy 32:39 says, See now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God with me. I kill, I make alive. I wound, I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. Amos 3:6. Shall a trumpet be blown in a city, and the people not be afraid? Shall there be evil in the city, and the Lord hath not done it? Exodus 4.11, the Lord said unto him, Who hath made man's mouth? Or who maketh the dumb, or the deaf, 
or the seeing or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Psalm 105.16, Moreover, he called for a famine upon the land. He broke the whole staff of bread. 2 Kings 17.25, And so it was at the beginning of their dwelling there that they feared not the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which slew some of them. Lamentations 3.38, Out of the Most High, out of the mouth of the Most High proceedeth not evil and good. Isaiah 45.5, I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, thou hast not known me. That they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. I form light. I create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. The question of why God allows suffering and evil to run rampant can paralyze us with fear or cause us to create an idol of a lesser God, to bring God down to a level of my understanding. Maybe he doesn't know. Maybe he isn't strong or he doesn't care. So Job wonders about these things, and he wrestles with these things, and he dodges the bullets of his friends, and finally he gets an audience with God. And God talked with Job, but he never answered the question. But he is there with Job. He is bearing him up. He is carrying him and sustaining him. Job was looking for an answer to his question, but instead he found God. And God never gave him an answer, but he took away the question. Job was willing to be honest with God, and he trusted God enough to gaze into his eyes, place his hand over his mouth, and repent in dust and ashes. There was once a man who endured tremendous suffering in, in Nazi Germany in a concentration camp, and he said, we have little freedom over the events of our lives, but we have unlimited freedom in how we respond to these events. Well, Job struggled well. He said that God knows the way that I take. Even when Job did not understand the way, he knew that God did. And he worshipped God outside the blessing of material things. Even though God would slay him, he chose to trust him. Job is not a book of answers. But I believe it is a book that can grow our trust in a sovereign God who is powerful, who knows all things, and is loving. It's about drawing near to God in trust and adoration. Mother Teresa said that um, you'll never know uh, if Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you've got. Job's underlying desire was to see God. To see God. And seeing God does change us. Um, the, birds, the, the verses that John read, Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book. That they were graven with an iron pen and lead in rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand in the latter day upon the earth. How did Job know about a Redeemer? These statements that he makes are amazing. Job did not let his understanding or lack of understanding about God or his circumstances paralyze him. He trusted God. He knew that his Redeemer lived. My Redeemer lived. And his life certainly points us to our Redeemer. Job was required to intercede for his friends. 
Job is a redeemer for his friends who points us to Jesus, our redeemer. And it is through Jesus, our redeemer, that evil is overcome. Through the power of the resurrection, death and evil lose their power because Jesus was victor over them. When we grow close enough to God to see him, all of our questions are overcome by trust in the God who gave his son for us. Job points us to Jesus, who suffered even though he was sinless. And through his suffering and shed blood made a way for us to have access to the Father. In 1 John 3, 2, it says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. When Job saw God, and when we see God, we change. I am a guarded person, and I tend to want to be only so close to God, because I fear God, a God who is completely in control of the events of my life, because I want to be in control. I resist being open and vulnerable to Him because of the hurt and the pain that He may allow into my life. What I learn in the book of Job is that being in the presence of Jesus is the only way that we can find security. It's the only secure position. When we are on the fringes with Christ, we are susceptible to a failing faith. When we are in Christ, we may still suffer, but we are never alone. Our questions will be replaced with God's amazing presence. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, I pray that you would teach us to trust you, to recognize that you are a God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, And there are things about you that we do not understand. And sometimes this offends us. We we want you to be kinder, gentler, or different. But you are God. You are sovereign. You don't answer to us. And we we want to have the faith that Job did. Though you slay me, yet will I trust in you. Thank you, Lord, that my Redeemer liveth. And that he has overcome uh, sin death and the grave, and has provided a way for us to be right with you, our sovereign God. And we rest in what Jesus has done for us, and our prayer is that our lives would be a testament of faith like Job's was to the people around us and to the heavens above us. Give us the power and the grace to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.